So far this week, another migrant found dead on the French side of the channel. About a thousand people have crossed into the UK. There is no coverage on any other broadcast channel or any UK newspaper. I think the story matters. I'm going to be asking you tonight whether you agree with that or whether you don't. We'll also be looking tonight. Day 11 of the Tory sleaze row. Is it ever going to go away? Will second jobs for MPs end soon? And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by former Apprentice star, Essex businessman and entrepreneur, Tom Skinner. First, though, the news. Good evening. Now, perhaps I've got this completely and utterly wrong, and if I have, you jolly well tell me. So far this week, we've had a dead body found on the French side of the channel, somebody attempting to make the crossing that didn't make it. That's the fifth migrant death on the French side in a week. Yesterday, there were what is described as 16 incidents in the English Channel, and it's been confirmed by the Home Office that 504 people arrived yesterday, taking this year's total to 21,407. And that's without today's numbers, which will, without doubt, take us through 22,000. But here's the funny thing. Despite the deaths mounting, despite the numbers being almost completely out of control, who else in UK media is covering this? Well, I had a look today at the Daily Express. No mention whatsoever. I had a look at the Guardian. No mention whatsoever. Surely the Telegraph must cover this. No mention whatsoever. The Mirror. Let's try the Mirror. No mention whatsoever. The Times. No mention whatsoever. The Sun. No mention whatsoever. Surely the Daily Mail must have done something on this. No mention whatsoever. Deaths mounting, huge numbers coming across the channel, no mention whatsoever. And on the other broadcast channels yesterday, there was no mention whatsoever. I think this issue matters. I think it matters in terms of cost. I think it matters in terms of our security. I think it matters in terms of the promise that was made to the British people during and after the referendum that we were taking back control of our borders. And yet, nobody else in mainstream media seems to think this is even a story. So please, you tell me, is the migrant crisis an important priority, yes or no? And you can let me know, as usual, by emailing gbviews at gbnews.uk or tweeting at gbnews. I think this is a huge, growing crisis, and, and my fear that I've expressed before is if we don't deal with this, and remember, we're now in the middle of November and these huge numbers are coming, my fear, if this is not dealt with, next summer it, the channel will begin to look a bit like the Mediterranean did back in 2015. Well, joining me to discuss what's been happening today in the channel, and once again it's been very, very busy, is our Home Affairs and Security Correspondent, Mark White. Mark, good evening. Crazily busy day again. Yeah, very busy indeed. Started first thing this morning with about 10 boats crossing the channel that were responded to by Border Force vessels and some lifeboats. Then in the afternoon, busy again with about a dozen separate incidents. 
lots of lifeboats, uh, four, I think, we were told, lifeboats and border force vessels all involved in that. And as you say, we are now likely, when we get the figures from the Home Office, probably in a couple of days' time, <laughs> it usually takes them a wee while. Uh, well, of course, probably... there's so many to count. Yeah, well, indeed. Uh, it's probably going to go over uh, 22,000. So we are rapidly approaching the figure of three times as many migrants crossing the channel yeah. today as crossed in the, uh, the channel in the whole of last year. I've been looking back at the events of today, uh, some of the shots provided by our cameraman down in Dover. This is what we filmed. Yeah. Ploughing through the waves along the Kent coast, Dover lifeboat off to yet another call-out. To say they've been busy of late doesn't begin to describe the workload these volunteers are having to shoulder, as they're called on increasingly to respond to the growing small boat crisis in the Channel. And as we head towards winter, there is no end in sight to a problem that the Home Secretary says she's determined to tackle, but in reality seems powerless to make any meaningful impact on. It was the promise of relatively calm conditions in the Channel this week that brought dozens of small boats back out onto the water. I say relatively calm, for in truth, there are never really ideal conditions on a stretch of water where the winds can whip up in an instant, where the tides are always fast-flowing and where the wakes from the many vessels in this busy shipping lane only add to the obstacles faced by these small boats. On Wednesday, more than 20 of them were intercepted in British waters. Around 10 incidents were reported early morning. The boat's occupants brought back to shore. Here, they're on the border force cutter Seeker. Five border force vessels were responding to calls throughout the morning. But by lunchtime, there were more small boat sightings than they could possibly manage, at least a dozen in the space of a few hours. And so much of the burden falls on the lifeboats, often called out as many of the migrants are told by the people traffickers to dial 999 and say they're in trouble. The RNLI then have no choice but to respond. But it is putting intense pressure on this volunteer service where those responding have to leave their main job of work for hours on end, day after day. It's clearly unsustainable. Border Force is purchasing a fleet of new vessels, but they won't be on the water for several months yet. The construction of this purpose-built processing centre in Dover tells you where the Home Office is at, despite the tough talk. We are already approaching triple the number of migrants who've crossed this year compared to the whole of last year. And with thousands gathering in Dunkirk, Calais, Boulogne and elsewhere along the northwest French coast, that number is only set to increase. The numbers painted on the boats in Dover Harbour are well over 800, but there are many more. On the busier days, they're not even towed back into port. They're left to drift in the channel, eventually washing up 
on local beaches. Well, Mark's report there focused a lot on the RNLI. Let's have a look at a map of the Kent and Sussex coast just to get some idea of where we were today. So there we've got the Ramsgate lifeboat, the Woolmer lifeboat, the Dover lifeboat, the Dungeness lifeboat. That's a 50-mile stretch of water on which operations were going on today. And actually, to be fair, the Dungeness lifeboat did go out to the west of Dungeness Point, so probably more like a 60-mile stretch of coast. And, Mark, not just the lifeboats, but the five border force vessels that you mentioned. Not only that, but drones up in the air spotting. Not only that, uh, but spotter planes as well. I mean, this is like a vast military operation, isn't it, every single day? The cost, of course, I mean, goodness knows what the true cost of all of this is. But you've picked up on the lifeboats. I've run that story here on GB News since I started back in the summer. I've repeatedly made the argument that this is not what the lifeboat service is actually for. It's for genuine emergencies at sea, that it's unsustainable, that donors are unhappy. And I've received a wall of abuse for daring to suggest it. But you can now see this very clearly. I mean, the Lifeboat Institute in Kent's in trouble, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that many people actually who are volunteering on the boat will agree with you because they are trying to hold down their normal job of work. Many of them might be self-employed, others may have an understanding employer. It's a bit like the fire service, the volunteer retained fire service. Your employer will put up with that, knowing that it's maybe only two, every three or four days that you get a call out and you're serving your local community. If it is what we're experiencing now, day after day, often back-to-back -back calls taking you out for the better part of the day, yeah. you can see that employers would get increasingly concerned and, you know, rather disconcerted by that. And that will be putting a strain on what is a volunteer service. It, re you know, relies on their goodwill. And it also takes these boats out of operation when there could be a genuine emergency. Now, I'm not saying that every channel crossing, you know, there aren't occasions when there are genuine emergencies. There are. These yes. are dangerous crossings. And we've seen, as you just said uh, in your introduction to my report, some five migrants that have been confirmed dead in the past week, others that we believe have died, but uh, they're missing at sea. It is dangerous, uh, but of course, when the RNLI are concentrating on calls, which are effectively the migrants told by the people traffickers right. to dial 999, yeah. because then you're guaranteed a pickup by the British, mm. um, then they are not available, clearly, to uh, go to other incidents that they might be required to go to. And, of course, they are then having to attend back-to-back -back calls and working all these yeah. hours. Well, Mark, you and I will go on covering this story because we, we think it matters. I'm asking you tonight whether you think this matters, uh, and it is still to me, thank you, it is still to me a, a source of incredulity that with deaths mounting, with the numbers coming into the country going through the roof, that the rest of our media have decided this is not a story because you at home simply won't be interested. I think they've got this completely and utterly wrong. Moving on, the Prime Minister has been back at COP26 today, desperate to inject some life into that vast conference. Um, but I'm not sure it's really working. And actually, when he was there, all the journalists wanted to talk about is the Tory sleaze scandal, which is now in day 11. And far from showing any sign of abating, I get the feeling it's getting worse and getting worse pretty quickly. Let's listen to Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking about this.
The most important thing is those who break the rules must be investigated and should be punished. Uh, and on second jobs, I would say that uh, for hundreds of years, MPs have uh, gone to Parliament and, and also done work as, as doctors or lawyers or soldiers or firefighters. If that system is going to continue today, then it is crucial that MPs follow the rules. Now, one of the most egregious examples of this that has been put on our newspapers is that of Geoffrey Cox. Uh, he is, of course, Conservative Member of Parliament for Torridge and West Devon. Um, and this picture appeared um, in the Sunday Times. It's been used ever since. Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, is joining me now. Geoffrey Cox, of course, was in Theresa May's cabinet, was in a very senior position, Attorney General, senior mm -hmm. legal position. And, and we now learn that he's earning nearly a million pounds a year uh, doing other jobs, including, fascinatingly, working for the British Virgin Islands. Against the British government. Against the British government. Which is quite incredible. I mean, there are many, many uh, levels and kind of this is... bits to this story. This is the picture, by the way, that's controversial. So what he's doing with the British Virgin Islands isn't necessarily controversial. Um, what was controversial is that, that picture of the bottom screen, the bottom bit of that screen, is that that was taken, we think, inside the House of Commons. Yes. So going to the British Virgin Islands, even in April, May, when most of us were told we're not allowed to travel abroad and all that sort of stuff, is not against the rules. Uh, in fact, uh, Geoffrey Cox was very clear today, saying that he cleared it with the chief whip. The problem is, for him, and this is what Labour have picked up on, it was the front page of the Times today, yeah. is that that picture was inside the Commons. He was clearly working as a lawyer, which he's allowed to do for the British Virgin Islands. But what you're not allowed to do is to use public space or Parliament or your own office in Parliament for your own private benefit. Yeah. And that is where now the Standards Commissioner is going to start looking into this. Uh, Geoffrey Cox today denies he's broken any rules, though he did say he would abide by the judgment, of course, of the Standards Commissioner. But this is one of the things that Owen Patterson was found out about, one of the, one of the ways that he uh, essentially was sanctioned by Parliament all, uh, on this. And what it does, though, and we've, you know, this has now been on the front page for three days, just the Geoffrey Cox stuff, yeah. it just means this story runs and runs and runs, and there'll be lots of Conservative MPs thinking... Am I next? And as a member of Parliament for Torridge and West Devon, how active as an MP is Well, <laughs> this is the thing. So his defence today is that he does 70 hours a, uh, uh, a week, so that, you know, he's still properly dividing his time uh, when it comes to working for his constituents. However, I think he's voted only twice in person in the Commons over the last kind of 18 months or so. Many in his constituency say... They never really see him. In fact, when journalists were sent down yesterday to try and find him to ask him some questions about this story, uh, they were told he was abroad. Uh, so it's pretty clear, I think, he's not and there he's all spoken, of the time. Is it once in 18 months he's spoken? Yeah, indeed. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I think... so actually, truth is, being an MP is the part-time job for him. Is that, that fair? Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure he would deny that. But looking at this, I think the big thing is what would people out there say? And they would say, if you're elected as a member of parliament yes. and you earn over 80 grand a year, like, how have you got time for anything else? Let alone dividing a substantial amount of your time to a and second job that pays 10 and, times as yeah. much. 10 and times that's as where much. the public are on this. I mean, I get it. You know, I have made the argument here that there are people who run businesses when they get elected and we've got to think about them. But I understand the public are very intolerant of this, deeply intolerant of this. Then there's the case 
of Daniel Kaczynski, another Shropshire MP. Just explain to people what that is. Yeah, so, of course, uh, he is involved, um, essentially, as a kind of a trade ambassador for uh, the UK to Mongolia, uh, where there are, um, it should be said, a lot of mines uh, where uh, minerals are extracted from, while at the same time, essentially working on behalf of uh, one of those kind of mineral extraction uh, companies. And again, it's that question about... And he's earned... I think it's around, I'm not entirely, I think it's about 60 grand, is it? So, quarter of a million over the last... So, so, so quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's that question of, you know, not, no one's suggesting these are breaking the rules. It's how it looks on the outside. Mm. And also uh, whether, essentially, you know, MPs, again, should be spending their time doing this and whether they're using those positions to get themselves into a position where they may well personally benefit from it. But not alone, and it's not just the Conservative Party. You know, there have been allegations as well. Keir Starmer, Ed Davey, you know, in the past they have also been involved yeah. in this. But, undoubtedly, it weighs more heavily on the Conservative Party for a whole range of reasons, not least of all because they've been in government for 11 years. And again, with a lot of former ministers, when you've worked in a department, the easiest thing in the world to do is to go and get a consulting job in that particular sector because, of course, you are important to that yeah. sector. You know the game, you know who's important, you know who to talk to, you know what the issues are. And that's why, in some ways, it's maybe not a surprise more Conservatives... And two things, two takeaways from this, I think... Uh, the first is that this is just not going to go away. No. This is like the 09 expenses scandal. It's like the cash for questions back in the 1990s. Once the genie is out of the bottle, it stays out. First thing to think about, I, I sense, and I don't know whether you agree with me, I sense there is a, a change in the rules coming on second jobs. Yeah, I think, I think the government's going to have to get ahead of this. Now, we heard Boris Johnson today saying, you know, if you've broken the rules, you need to be punished. Also saying this is not a corrupt country. And on that, you know, I think he's got a pretty fair point. You know, we've got a pretty vociferous democracy and certainly uh, media. I I'm not entirely... Uh, I, I wouldn't go along with the Britain being a corrupt country. But at the same time, uh, there, is, there is public anger about this. MPs are getting... Yeah. emails and, and text messages and, and letters about this. So I suspect when it comes to second jobs, there may well have to be a compromise here. It could be around banning consultancy entirely. It could be around capping them of hours you're allowed to do or the, or the salary yeah. you're allowed to get. Something, something's going to happen. So it won't be... Yeah, something will... Ha I, I would have to think the government is going to have to get ahead of this somehow. Yeah. I don't think it'll be an outright and ban, but they'll, they'll have to reach some type of compromise. And finally, Darren, this is really interesting, and we chatted about this earlier in the newsroom. If Owen Patterson had just taken the 30-day suspension, he would still be a Member of Parliament, the genie wouldn't be out of the bottle for everybody We'll else. be talking about COP. Because, <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but because of what the government did in a bid to defend him, the genie is out of the bottle, and there are now 80 or so Conservative MPs who are having their own private business affairs plastered over the front pages of the newspaper, facing perhaps quite a big loss of their secondary income if caps come in. Yeah, and what does this mean for Boris Johnson's position as leader of the Parliamentary Party? I, I think there'll be a lot of Conservative MPs again asking, why have we ended up here? This is so avoidable. We didn't need to be here. You're right. Particularly, there are a lot of senior Conservative MPs who've got these secondary incomes. Yeah. They will not want to lose them, and they'll be pretty angry about why they may be losing them. And at the same time, I think the other... And, and that will raise questions, again, about Downing Street, about Boris Johnson's leadership, about his political antennae. Why did they not see this coming? Uh, why did they not gain this yeah. out? 
Um, and, and, frankly, and, old, and, of course, the divide also, the old guard and the new guard. Well, and that's the other really interesting thing in this. You have to remember, lots of these Conservative MPs who do have these second jobs or seem less concerned about it have got thumping majorities like, for example, Owen Paterson, like, for example, Geoffrey Cox. Yeah. That is not true of lots of the 2019 intake in the Red Wall constituencies who've got wafer-thin majorities. Yeah. They know the public do not like this, and they don't like that old cod Conservative MPs essentially saying, yeah. oh, it's fine, we'll bluster yeah. through, yeah. whatever. And they're pretty uppity, and I think that's where we're starting to see, actually, a genuine chasm between the newly elected Conservative MPs, yeah. um, who are also different politicians in many ways from the old guard. Oh. And again, that does not help Boris Johnson's it's leadership. Darren, and this is a government with a majority of 80. You can't believe it. It's fascinating. This one will run and run. In a moment, I'll tell you about me being cancelled. Yet again, I'm used to being cancelled, of course, by the left-wing hate mob. But this time, it was a charity event. Raises some very serious questions. Do the events in the English Channel this week actually matter? I think they do. GB News thinks they do. The other media organisations clearly don't think you care. So I've asked you the question, does it matter? Gary on Twitter says, yes, this is a genuine crisis with economic refugees and the government are doing nothing. Tom says, we need to deploy the military to stop the migrants crossing. Not that easy on water. Christopher says, there is more coverage of migrants trying to get into Poland than coming into the UK. There certainly is. One viewer on Twitter says, it should be in the news. I voted for Boris and I've been let down. Jenny on Twitter says, Boris never seems to be asked about the migrants. No, of course not, because mainstream media have decided it's not a story. Now, following on directly from that, the pandemic has been blamed for a lot of things, and now it's apparently led to thousands of foreign criminals not being properly checked. According to Migration Watch, the tracking of foreign criminals and illegal immigrants has gone completely out of control, After Im and immigration controls, frankly, are now carried out over the phone rather than in person. Uh, we're told 11,000 of the UK's 80,000 foreign and immigration offenders, those, and certainly those 11,000 of highest risk, um, are not being contacted in person. What the hell is going on? Have we literally just given up? I don't know. Well, joining me to analyse this is David Coleman, Professor of Demography at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. David, how is it possible that there are 80,000 people here that we know of uh, illegally, 11,000 of them criminals, some serious, and yet we're doing a few random checks by telephone on them. What the hell is going on? Well, uh, the two things. The, the big thing that's going on is um, the government's relative neglect and indifference to the problem of migration uh, and the inadequacy of resources. Uh, the second point is, of course, we, 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 have, to, we have to be careful that we're being boring. We don't know if it really is 80,000. We don't know how many. It is up to 80,000. Uh, let, let, let's be fair. Um, uh, part of the problem is, is COVID. It's not really explained to us 
what role COVID has played? Is, is it making uh, depredations into the number of effective uh, immigration officers but by making them ill? Or is it precautions in the offices which make it impossible to interview people? I, I, I'd be surprised about the latter because, after all, we see GPs occasionally, uh, we go shopping, uh, we go to concerts. Uh, all these things can be done in, 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 in safety. Um, uh, and part of the problem, I think, is going to be the uh, the problem with the channel. I understand that about 250 officers have been moved to, to the channel ports uh, in order to, well, uh, in theory, uh, control the, the arrival of illegal immigrants over the water, in practice, of course, to facilitate their arrival. Um, uh, and, and that, of course, has depleted the number of people available uh, to, to see um, the um, um, uh, foreign uh, convicted persons yeah. in, in person. But even when they do uh, get get in touch with them, uh, the inspector reported very unfavorably on what was then happening, uh, pointing out that they, they, they weren't properly interrogated, that data were, weren't properly collected, records weren't being uh, correctly preserved. Uh, and so what little was done uh, seemed to be extremely badly done. Uh, David, do you understand why this is the only news channel taking this seriously, that even our newspapers, even our tabloid newspapers, in a week when a fifth migrant that we know of in one week has been found dead on the French side of the channel, when over 500 came yesterday, and all right, it's a bit early for today, but it'll be 500 again today, I suspect. I mean, you said the government are indifferent to this. Perhaps one of the reasons they're indifferent is they're not getting any media pressure. Why are the media? Do you have any, any theories, any thoughts as to why the media <laughs> simply well, they're, don't they're, want they're, to cover they're, this? They're only theories. Um, part of the reason is that, that, that we're probably bored with migration. Uh, another um, problem is that people imagine, after all the rhetoric to do with Brexit, uh, that migration is not just being controlled, which could be controlled upwards, of course, but is being reduced. Uh, which, which it isn't, and under present plans, it's more likely to go up than, than go down. Uh, but people, I, I think, are still, um, to, a, to a large but decreasing extent, persuaded that things are, in some sense, under control right. because we've done Brexit. Um, uh, and, and also, there is a, always has been, uh, more or less, an indifference and, and a distaste on the part of some sections of the media, and certainly sections of uh, the political class to even think about or talk about migration. It is not a nice subject. Yeah, distasteful. Too distasteful, yeah. not in front of the children, it's all too much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. David, I suspect you're right. Thank you, David Coleman, for joining us. And all that use of the word that David used there, the indifference of the government towards this whole subject of immigration and illegal immigration, but they need to remember that promises were made, and with Brexit, we now have control of our borders, but a government that is not choosing to exercise that control. Now, my What the Farage moment, and it's, it's a dispiriting story, but it's also a sad commentary on where we are in this country today. I had accepted an invitation. Uh, it was going to take place, this event, at Preston Grasshopper's Rugby Club. It was the week before Christmas, and I'd spoken to one or two very prominent members of the club, and they'd organised an evening with Nigel Farage. The man, not the myth. It had nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with party politics. It was me 
talking about my life, talking about working in the city, talking about uh, plane crashes, car crashes, various disasters I've been through, talking about uh, being uh, the pantomime villain of the European Parliament, giving a speech, taking some questions, and it was all being done for a local hospice in Preston, St Catherine's Hospice, you know, who rely on donations to keep going and looking after people in great need. Uh, and I was delighted and happy to be able to go and do this. One or two politically active members didn't like it very much. Uh, one, a local Labour councillor who objected uh, to me even being in Preston. Uh, that then started online some criticism, even some real abuse. Uh, and the most prominent abuser online happened to be somebody with a European Union flag on his Twitter profile. So the event has been cancelled and the club put out a statement saying following feedback from our members and wider comments on social media, the club has taken the decision to cancel the booking. We apologise for posting the event on the website and giving the impression that we are promoters of the event or endorse any political views. Well, it wasn't a political meeting, but that is what fear does. That's what fear does. People online being aggressive and abusive, people saying they'll leave the rugby club, who in most cases have never even been members of the rugby club. Uh, and it also led to pressure on the hospice, who put out a statement, albeit a private statement, uh, saying they couldn't accept any money from an event like this. I mean, it actually read rather like a sort of ISIS hostage putting out a note saying, please come and help me. And that is what the cancel culture mob on the left have sunk to in this country. There are no depths for these people. And the fact that the hospice, who would, I can tell you, because tickets were selling very well, we'd have had an auction, there would have been a big five-figure check for that hospice, but that won't happen anymore because there are some people who are not just intolerant of Brexit and of my views on borders, but think I should actually be cancelled as a human being. They are dreadful people, they are awful people, but they will always be in the ascendancy if they're met by cowardice. And all of us in our lives, in whatever way we can, need to stand up for the right of others to have opinions, to be able to express them freely. It's very sad. Coming up next on Talking Pines, I'm with The Apprentice star, Thomas Skinner, Essex man and all-round geezer. Should be fun. Well, joining me here tonight in the GB News pub on Talking Pints is an entrepreneur who is best known for his appearance on The Apprentice and his creative use of the word bosh. Let's have a quick look before I introduce him. Get your nuts in there, sell as many bites as you can, crack on guys, just go. Time to go and make some money, mate. What's going on? Bosh. 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 <laughs> Hello to my fellow space warriors. Come on! He's Tom Skinner. Tom, Bosch. Cheers, Bosch. <laughs> nice to see you. So, The Apprentice. Yes. Amazing programme. Loved it. Uh, you know, and of course, Michelle, who was on before me, was yeah. in it a couple of years before you, and it's been a big success in this country. In America, of course, the host of it over there for a long time was one certain New York yeah. businessman called Donald J. Trump. Clearly, you know, you're kind of, can I say, Jack the Lad? 
Yeah, I suppose so, Joe. Um, <laughs> bit of a geezer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how did you get on with Alan Sugar? Uh, do you know what? He's a lovely, lovely man. Um, obviously, when I've done The Apprentice, I ain't like a normal person that goes on The Apprentice. And um, I'm a market trader from Romford. That's what I've always done. Went on a show. Really, really enjoyed it. Was, I found it. I found it like enjoyable. But, but when I was talking to Alan, like he's he's a genuine person, you know. He's he's not. He comes across on that screen like a really scary guy. But when you actually talk to him in person, one to one, he's a top bloke and he give you advice. But he still got rid of you. He still sacked me. You he know, still what I mean? fired he still... you <laughs> for, for not being diligent, not completing tasks on time. I lost every task, didn't I, Nigel? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I was pony on there. Let's be honest. I was absolutely <laughs> pony. And yet, afterwards, Sugar said after he sacked you. Sugar said that you were the kind of man you'd want to have with you in the trenches at war. So he was still quite nice about it's you. Lovely, wasn't it? Yeah. You're, uh, I mean, in a sense, Tom, your sort of early years, they are a bit checkered, aren't they? I mean, school, yeah. um, school is a bit checkered. Yeah. Uh, you did get kicked out. Got expelled, you? yeah. What did you get expelled? For being entrepreneurial, for selling porno DVDs. Is, is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But none of this has held you back in any way at all. So, talk to us about the word Bosch. Do you know what? what? So I didn't even know I said the word Bosch until I went on The Apprentice. And it's just a word that we've always said, you know, Bosch. Like, it's just, I you know, don't know, I sweet Bosch. I don't know where it, where it comes from. But, but as soon as I went on The Apprentice, everyone picked up, I say it about 400 times a day. And when it went on the telly, it became a trend. Everyone started saying Bosch all the time, Nigel. And it, it was madness. And, and uh, now I've named me business Bosch Beds after yep. the word. Like, I'm Bosch Global. I've got a couple of Bosch companies. Even Bosch Golf Club. Even, I've got, yeah, the Bosch Drive. I'm on the shopping channel twice a week, selling my own golf club. I'm making a living out of the word Bosch, which, is, uh, which ain't too yeah, sad. Brand. Now, Bosch Beds, that is, that, that, that is now your sort of big, yeah. big emerging business. Yeah. How big is Bosch Beds? It's pretty big now. Started off just me and my mate in the van together, uh, knocking out matches, knocking on doors. Literally, that was us. Right? I'm not going to lie to you, that was us. I mean, you are the modern-day Dell boy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be. But like, that, that's how we started. Honestly. We started knocking on doors. Look, we've got these mattresses. Um, now we employ 12 staff. We supply 200 hotels throughout the UK. Really? We, we sell hundreds of mattresses every single week. And we're a serious, you know, we're, in the, we're almost a household name with the, with the mattresses now, which is good. So. And you manufacture these in the UK? Yes, everything has got to be made in the UK. It's really important to me. A lot of these big bed brands, they buy from China. But I mean, uh, IKEA run out of mattresses a little while ago because they couldn't get the stock from China. And we was inundated with orders yep. simply because we had the stock physically making it in the UK and we was there and we had it and, and we, we'd done well out of it. But Tom, let me ask you a question. If you're manufacturing yeah. things like mattresses and beds in the United Kingdom, how the hell do you get them to market at a competitive price? What you've got to realise is, is matches are really big and bulky and so are beds. So containers are very expensive at the minute and you can't get a lot in a container, especially from China. So when they actually come over here, once you've paid the travel, it, it's, not, it's not as competitive. Whereas what we do is we work extremely skinny on margins. So we ain't greedy, but we'll do hundreds of matches every single week. So that's, that's how we do well. You're doing hundreds every week? Hundreds every single week. And, and what, what Bosch Beds is so good at is, I, I mean, our best-selling mattress, the aloe vera mattress, um, is around four to five hundred pounds, depending on the size you get. The equivalent in the in the big brand stores, like the big retailers, is over is over fifteen hundred quid. So that's why we're just inundated, and we've got that personal touch. We'll go and knock on your door. We'll ring you out next day, ask you how your bed was, how your sleep was, and we just like look after people. And you started off with pillows. Started off with pillows, yeah. And then because uh, in America, my pillow is absolutely yeah. enormous. Mm. 
Uh, I, I mean, and he's he's in this country now as well, isn't he? I think. Yes. I think Mike Pillow. Yeah, a little bit. So you're yeah. still doing the pillows. We're still doing them. Um, we, we got stuck a little bit with COVID because obviously, maddest thing in the world. We couldn't manufacture pillows, but we could still manufacture beds. I don't know how that works, but but we, we sort of slowed down on the pillow front and we pushed on the mattresses. And obviously, now we're known for mattresses and, and pillows as a sideline. You know, it's just what we do. So are on the you side. making loads of money? We're doing all right. We're having a go. You know what I mean? We're having a go. Sitting here talking, having a pint with you is quite nice. Well, very good. We met once before, mm. and it's, it's very nice to see you. Now, what I want to get to, Tom Skinner, and this is important, is, you know, you're somebody, you say, educationally, no advantages, didn't, you know, didn't, didn't do the university thing, didn't no. get qualifications at school particularly. You've gone on and succeeded. And there are people out there, lots of people out there, who aren't particularly academic, yeah. don't fit in, very well at school. And I kind of feel in a society where we've encouraged so many kids to go to university that those that don't go are almost made to feel a bit like failures, a bit like they haven't made the grade. Yes, yeah, it's, it's wrong, really. Like, I, I mean, look, I'm dyslexic. Um, so I st still to this day, I've got someone that's on my paperwork for me because I cannot do it, can't do it. Sorry, that bit is a bit gassy. <laughs> right? And um, yeah, you're right. You know, so many kids, especially nowadays, are taught you have to do this, you have to do that. I'd say, look, find something that you're good at, concentrate on it, whether it be anything what it is, you find your goal, your, 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 you know, what you're great at, and you focus on that. Like, I'm good at selling. I'm good at talking to people. So what's the art of selling? Just listen, making someone like you and uh, getting someone a good price, and that's it. That is simply all it is. It's that easy. Getting them a good price or getting you a good price? Getting them a good price. And yourself, of course. You've got to make a profit as well, haven't you? <laughs> Can't well, do it with nothing. <laughs> because I'm just thinking, you know, people like you, I think, potentially quite an interesting role model for people who, as I say, like you, may be dyslexic, find school very difficult, don't fit in particularly. What, what does it take to be an entrepreneur? A lot of our work, I mean, this morning I was up at 4.30 this morning, loading the vans up, um, but, and then, because we've got to cut the drivers off with the dreaded COVID at the minute, which is a nightmare. Um, I've loaded the vans up, it's hard work, you know, made sure everyone's so always you're there. you physically doing all this? Look, yeah, I mean, not every day I do it, because we've got a lot of stuff in place that do do them roles, but on days, I, I'm very hands-on, I love getting involved. Like, when well, you've got to be an entrepreneur, you've got to work long hours, it's, it's our graft. But I enjoy it. But the rewards are, are brilliant. Yeah, I think that's right. There's no substitute, is there? I yeah, of course. People think being self-employed could be a soft touch, but it's not, is it? It's a, it's a damn difficult look, thing to do. Anyone, look, anyone can do a nine to five and, 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 and go to work, and, and I'm well done with them going to work. But if you want to step outside that box and you feel like you've got an idea, like uh, anyone who's watching this, go and run with it. Give yourself a go. Give it 100%, because you find out that you actually have got some skills that you never knew you had. And... You, and Anything you can overcome, especially I've found it when I've been grafting, that I've found things I thought I could never do, and in the end I found I can do them. So you're not standing on a freezing market stall in Romford Market anymore? I, st I, still, I still do the odd market here and there. Do well, you? Yes, of course I do. Yeah, I love them. You see me blood, I can't, I can't stuff it. I love doing the odd market <laughs> stall every now and then. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. You don't need to, do you? No, I don't need to at all, but I just love it. I absolutely love it. I love meeting people. I love standing there. I love doing a deal. Um, but we done, we done Northfield Market a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was just... On the stores, I was selling, I was selling bar stools, funny enough, yeah. uh, for 25 quid. That was 80 quid online. And we just do it. We've done loads of them. And I just love the buzz. People going, can I have a photo of you, Tom? I see you on the telly. And it was just a nice day. Earn a few quid, treat, treat the missus in the evening and had a, had a life. It's, it's fascinating. And golf is obviously your big hobby. This is, this is your big thing, is it? Yeah. And tell us about the Dream 4 ball. Right, Dream 4 ball. Come on. 
I don't know, I have, you know. <laughs> I, I couldn't actually say my dream four boys because I'd, I, there's not enough, there's not enough, uh, you can't know four players, can you? <laughs> are, are you a good player? I'm okay, I've got an 11 handicap. Yeah. Um, I've just brought out my boss driver. So, who, so, okay, let's just get into that then. Because, I mean, the, the golf market yeah. is massively competitive. Yeah. Uh, you know, these golf superstores, online... You know, tens of millions play this game globally. Yeah. They've got real money to spend. How on earth you get? How, how on earth do you get into a market like that? Well, I'll tell you what happened, Nigel. Right. So, I have, I did have an old set of clubs that were my granddad's handed down. They was ancient, and then my driver went a bit wafty. I smashed the floor. Ed come flying. I thought time to get a new club. In temper. Well, so, no, no. Literally smashed. Literally had a miss it. Bang. Whacked it into the floor. Ed's gone further than the ball. Thought God, I can't get a new driver. So I gone into the pro shop. And they're all 600 quid. And the pros going to me, well, you're not quite good enough for that one. And this one, you've got to screw up to do that. And this one, you need to... And I went, I just want a driver I can hit, mate. And uh, in the end, I thought, sod this, I'm going to go and make my own. So I went and found the manufacturer. I went, went and done some designs. Went and spoke to the big brands, copied a couple of ideas, and brought out my own Bosch driver. And uh, we've, been doing re- we've been on the shopping channel with it uh, on Ideal World, and we've been doing really well with it. And uh, what does the Bosch driver set me back? Uh, 199 quid, so it's a third of the price of, of the of the competitors. Is it any good? It's the nuts. It's the nuts. I'll tell you this what. This is what Del Boy said to everybody who bought stuff. I'll tell you what. I'll give you one. I'll give right. you one. Right. You play with it as yep. many times as you want. Right. Yep. And if and for nothing. And if it's rubbish, yep. I'll give you 200 quid as well. There you go. Right. He's, he's <laughs> he never blooming stops, does he? He's the salesman. No, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm amazed that you can break into a market like golf. It's difficult, Absolutely. yeah. So what's next for Tom Skinner? What do you do next? Um, oh, there's loads. Probably a putter. <laughs> <laughs> Probably bring a putter out. Um, I'm going to carry on focusing on my beds and my mattresses. Um, we've got new ranges. We've got new pillars launching just before Christmas. Um, I want to I grow the business, you know. I want to keep building it up. Because um, all all, most, of, most of my employees are my childhood friends as well. Yeah. Keep it nice and close, but we're expanding now. We're nationwide now. Um, and just want to... Just Really builds an empire. That's, that's the plan. Yeah, maybe one day go public or do whatever people Love do. To, yeah, maybe, maybe that would be a little IPO or something. Well, we had somebody in not long ago, um, Charlie Mullins, Pimlico Plumbers. Yeah. And he's just sold his company for, I think, £145 million, So it yeah. can be done. Of course. Um, what about the country? What about the state of the country, Tom? How do you see the state of the country right now? Yeah, it's, it's not in the best state at the moment, is it? Let's be honest. Um, but... You know, I think we've all got to keep cracking away and keep and keep doing what we're doing and and and, and just you know, is, I tell you, man. I mean, the pandemic. You know, the pandemic. I mean, what that's done. What what I think to, to sort of people's psychology. Yeah. What what I think is really really scary is so many people have lost their businesses, lost their jobs, they're on their knees, and there's no help out there at the minute. You know, we just spoke before we come on about the COVID passports. How do they expect hospitality sector to survive? Well, these you know, well, all these things that they're trying to do, they just. They're just cutting people's, they're cutting people's knees off so they can't walk. And I don't understand why that's happening because it ain't good for the economy. No tax is going to be paid. Like, I don't think people understand the follow-on of what is actually going on. Yeah, it is the little people, it is the self-employed mm. that have been hurt. But the, hosp- just, the hospitality sector... No, it's just the managed things. What people don't realise is, is literally, like, mo- the majority of the tax in this country is from SME, small businesses, self-employed. That's where the money and comes from. they're ignored. Pay- they're well, ignored. Yeah, but, but that's where the money goes for the NHS. That's where the taxes come from. And no-one seems to see this. I don't... It's mental. Is Boris a good Prime Minister? Look, I mean, he's got a silly haircut. <laughs> 
<laughs> in a dodgy suit. I, I don't mind. I don't mind Boris. I don't mind Boris at all. Look, to be honest with you, when it comes to politics, I don't know enough to say what a good promise is and what and what a bad one is as well. So I don't know. But, but you want a country that's well run, of course, of and course. And you're very patriotic. Of hundred percent. You know, hundred percent. Of course, I'm, I'm. I'm very proud and saying that all my products are made in the UK. You know, so on every on every single bed you'll see a big Union Jack, Sam, made with love in the UK. It's what we do. And I guess really the story here, above all, Tom, is for young people that want to really make a big career in something, yeah. get on telly. Get on telly, yeah. Because you have done all this without The Apprentice. Do you know what? I, look, look, before I was on The Apprentice, I was doing OK. Um, it gave me a massive, massive leg up. I would have got, got there in the end. It took me a lot longer, but I would have got there. I'd never given up. But um, look, for anyone that's watching this that wants to become an entrepreneur, get to work, just give it a go. Like, just go and give it your all. Whatever it is... Just believe in yourself, and it don't matter how big the steps are you're taking, as long as you're in the right direction, that's it, you know what I mean? Well, that was Tom Skinner on Talking Pints, saying to people, give it your all, believe in yourself, and go for it. How about that? <laughs>there we are. You see, anybody can do anything. They've just, they just got to believe in themselves and work hard. And I'm a great believer in that. Now, it is time for Barrage the Farage. And one viewer asks me today, here we go, what is the difference between Belarus pushing migrants into Poland and France turning a blind eye to the migrant problem in the channel? Um, well, I think the Belarus thing is clearly deeply political. It's designed to destabilise the European Union. And it's impossible to believe that what's happening in Belarus doesn't have the tacit support in some way of Vladimir Putin. Um, that's the difference. When it comes to the French and us, well, it seems the more money we send them, the more people they send us. Uh, they're taking the mickey. Uh, and they're almost, I feel, trying to punish us for Brexit. Um, and if you see what's happening on the Belarusian-Polish border, realise... Those people that do get into the European Union, plenty of them will finish up at Calais. Dee asks me, how would you solve the migrant crisis? So far this year, there have been zero deportations. Uh, that's the first point to make. Second point to make is, the pull factors are still there. People know if they come here, it's a four-star hotel, it's 38 quid a week spending money, it's free dental care, it's free health care, and frankly... We have to do what the Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott did. We have to take the boats or the migrants themselves under tow and dump them back in France. If they know they're not going to get in, they will stop coming. Stephen asks me, if we all turn vegan, perish the thought, like they want, what do we do with all the farmed animals? Where do they go? Well, I suppose we'd be allowed to eat them first. <clears throat> Look, there is this move towards veganism. Uh, vegetarianism, and that's up to people's individual conscience, all right? That's fine. But, 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 the really important thing is this. Where I do agree with the environmental lobby is I think fish farming, intensive farming of salmon is horrible. It's been disastrous for the locks in Scotland and for the, and, and for the native salmon stock. And I thought years ago, when we were fe feeding ground-up bone meal from sheep, uh, to cattle, uh, who's surprised that we finished up with CJD. I don't like intensive agriculture, and eating a bit less meat might not be a bad idea. What is your favourite ale, Paul asks. Anything that is well looked after and well poured, and I'm not going to advertise a brand right now, might do it some other time. Well, the migrant crisis we've discussed tonight, overnight there'll be hundreds more 
coming into the United Kingdom. Let's see if the other newspapers even and other broadcasters even want to cover it.